welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. We have two guests with us today visiting from the UK to talk about a classic, but also recently hot topic, group A strep. I'll welcome our co-host today, Dr. Anastasia Theodosiu. She is currently an adult infectious diseases and microbiology registrar at the University of Southampton. She is currently completing a PhD supervised by our other guest today, who I'll introduce in a moment. Thanks so much for introducing me, Sarah. So I'm Anastasia, but actually everyone calls me Tash. It's great to be here. Our guest discussing today is Dr. Chrissy Jones. Dr. Jones is an associate professor of pediatric infectious diseases at the University of Southampton. Welcome and nice to meet you. Hey, lovely to meet you as well, Sarah. My name's Chrissy, and yeah, delighted to be here with Tash to talk about group A strep. Uh, so before we jump into this very popular topic recently, I want to make sure we ask our little piece of culture. Is there anything that you guys have enjoyed recently or done recently that you have been excited about? Uh, maybe Tash, I'll start with you. Uh, so yeah, so me and my family are relocating to Scotland and we recently got to spend six months working there and immersing myself in Scottish culture has definitely brought me joy, uh, mainly traveling up in the highlands and hiking along the rugged coastline with my three-year-old on my back. It is breathtakingly beautiful. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> what about you, Christine? So I really enjoy reading as a means of escape and um, winding down. And I quite like murder mysteries or mysteries. And I've been reading a book called The Christie Affair, which is about those 11 days where Agatha Christie um, disappeared. And it's a fictional account of what happened during those 11 days. So yeah, very, very clever. And I really enjoyed reading that. Great. Well, we'll jump in with our case today. Uh, and I'll hand it over to you. Uh, great. So maybe a bit different to some previous cases, I'm going to start by giving the game away. So today's episode is all about Streptococcus pyogenes or group A strep. Um, we've had in the UK a really big increase recently in group A strep caseload with more scarlet fever, invasive infection and deaths uh, than, than previously for the time of year. And understandably, this has caused a, a significant amount of media attention. So we thought it would be a really good opportunity to think about the management of this important clinical topic. So I'll, I'll start with a little case. Uh, so there's a five-year-old child, previously fit and well, who presents to their general practitioner with a sore throat and fever. Uh, it's been going on for about two days. They don't have any cough or chorizal symptoms. And looking at them, the child does not look unwell. They are febrile with a temperature of 38.3 degrees Celsius, which is 101 Fahrenheit. And they have some pharyngeal exudate, um, but no rash and no palpable lymph nodes. So Chrissy, is this group A strep pharyngitis? So this is a really common presentation to primary care. And indeed, this could be group A strep, but I think really important to remember that the majority of pharyngitis and indeed tonsillitis is going to be viral in origin. But in children, up to 30% of these might be group A strep. And we're seeing this peaking around um, the ages of seven to eight and less commonly seen in children less than three, three years of age. So because it can be quite difficult to differentiate between viral causes of pharyngitis and tonsillitis um, and a group A strep cause of these conditions, different scoring systems can be used to help us think about the likelihood of these being caused by a group A strep. So in the US, um, the central score is commonly used 
And this is used in primary care for children over the age of three, really to try to determine whether the child should be swabbed to look for group A strep or not. In the UK, we tend to use a score called the fever pain score. And rather than this being an indication for swabbing, this is looking at the likelihood of group A strep and needing antibiotic treatment. This is a scoring system based on fever in the last 24 hours, whether there's a cough or coryza, um, whether symptom onset has been less than three days, whether there's purulent tonsillitis or severe tonsil inflammation. So for the child that you've given the case history for, this child would score four on the fever pain score. And so this would indicate a higher likelihood of group A strep. And in the UK context, this would be an indication for treatment. In the US, this might um the central score would also score a four and this would indicate the need for a swab. So in the UK we don't commonly swab children with a pharyngitis or a tonsillitis but we would do this if there's diagnostic uncertainty or there's concern about antibiotic resistance. Um, recently you've mentioned that there was this very large increase in cases in the community of group A strep so temporarily re- reduce the score down from a score of four to three for treatment or swabbing Um, because the a priori risk is higher. What we haven't been doing very much is swabbing these children and we haven't been using rapid diagnostic tests. And I'm aware that these are much more commonly used in the US. So Tash, you want to reflect a bit on um, the relative benefits of rapid diagnostic testing versus culture-based swabbing? Yep. So the rapid antigen test is incredibly specific, but it has a sensitivity of around about 70, can be as high as 90%, but, you know, conservatively 70% compared with culture, which would be your gold standard, which if done correctly, will have a sensitivity of about 90 to 95%. And I think it's really important here to think about the concept of spectrum bias. So the idea that the performance of a test really depends on the pretest probability of having the condition. So if you think about um, where these tests are used predominantly in in places like the States, less so in in the UK, a child presenting with a sore throat um, already has a pretest probability of about 30% of being group A strep, and this can be significantly higher during outbreaks. So if you have a sensitivity of only 70%, you're going to miss a fair few positives. And so in that case, the rapid uh, negative wouldn't be enough to rule out group A strep, and you would proceed to a culture. Conversely, if you had an adult or a child under the age of three coming in, their pretest probability of group A strep is only sort of five to ten percent. So actually a negative may well be sufficient and the and the guidelines would recommend that you don't need to confirm a negative with culture. Um, having said that, it's such a specific test that a rapid antigen uh, positive for group A strep would not need to be confirmed with culture unless there were concerns about resistance. So if we go back to the case now, so you've already said the Centaur score and the fever pain score would be four. So empirically in the UK, you would treat this child. So can you talk us through the rationale for treating with antibiotics? Yeah, so certainly, um, as you say, we would treat this child. We like as clinicians to think we're treating the individual in front of us. And that's the reason we're giving antibiotics. But actually, we're we're only reducing the symptoms by 16 to 24 hours in children. And this is when antibiotics are given within the first um, 48 hours. So it may make the child feel slightly better, slightly quicker, but they probably would get better without antibiotics um, as well. But what's really important is treating a child with group A strep would hopefully reduce transmission to those around them who are particularly vulnerable and particularly the elderly. They're also given to try to reduce the 
chance of separative complications such as um, a quincy from a sore throat or a mastoiditis from otitis media. And also thinking about the non-separative complications of group A strep, for instance, um, rheumatic fever. And in high burden settings, this is a really important reason for um, treating a child with group A strep. But coming back to one of the points I was making about treating this child to try to prevent separative complications later on, actually the number needed to treat is extremely high. The number needed to treat is over 4,000 to prevent one case of Quincy from a sore throat um, or one case of mastoiditis from otitis media. So masses of numbers needed to be treated to prevent these separative complications. But when we look at the number needed to treat to prevent pneumonia from group A strep in elderly contacts, this is only 39. So again, a much more compelling uh, reason why you might be treating this child to prevent transmission to those vulnerable in the community. Also, when we think about um, the number needed to treat to prevent a secondary case in mother-infant pairs, this is only 50. So again, thinking about other vulnerable people around the child, that's really, really important. We also thought briefly about acute rheumatic fever and the importance of trying to reduce these non-separative complications. So the number needed to treat here is only around 50 in high instance settings. But in the Western world, in reality, um, the number of children who get complications of acute rheumatic fever are much lower. Therefore, the rationale for treatment would be much higher in high instance settings compared to low instance um, settings. In addition to rheumatic fever, of course, we can get post-strep glomerulonephritis, but I think that the evidence for prevention of this using antibiotics is um, much less strong than it is for acute rheumatic fever. So, Tasha, just coming back to you, we've said we would treat this child. We know that conventional wisdom would be 10 days of penicillin B, um, normally QDS, but that's a huge um, burden for a parent to try to administer to a, a squirming child who does not want to be taking a foul-tasting um, medicine. So in reality, often in my context, I would use amoxicillin because it's more palatable. It can also be given as um, BD dosing, so less doses and more palatable. But perhaps it's worth just thinking about why, why the evidence is there, what the evidence is for 10 days of penicillin. Yeah, so the guidelines in both uh, the States and, and the UK are that we should give a 10-day course of a beta-lactam um, or alternative antibiotic if necessary, and that a shorter course than 10 days is less likely to achieve bacterial eradication and is associated with more recurrence of infection. Um, I think it's important to be mindful of what the basis of that is. So it's actually based on quite a small number of studies done in Scandinavian countries and in the US back in the 1980s. And it's also important to note that those studies were done when there was far less awareness of potential harms of antibiotics, uh, such as antimicrobial resistance or microbiome disruption, especially in kids. So it is difficult to know how clinically important the distinction between 10 days and, for example, five to seven days is and whether the benefits of a longer course definitely outweigh the potential harms in this sort of high-income setting, where we know that antibiotic use is high, and as Chrissy's already said, the rates of separative and non-separative uh, complications of group A strep are very low. So I think it's really important that we know what the guidelines are and, and obviously be mindful of those, but also be aware of, of what that evidence base is. They did a really nice session at ID Week this year talking about, about this 10 days versus some some type of shorter course because I feel like it comes up all the time with the scenario you're talking about of pediatricians calling in and saying I can't get this patient I can't get these meds into this patient um, what should we do 
I think it is really difficult for younger children to take some of these very unpleasant tasting um, medicines. So not only think about alternatives, but also think about whether a child actually could be trained to take a tablet rather than a suspension, which would be um, much more acceptable. And indeed, there are some really good initiatives teaching children to to swallow um, tablets and can be successfully taught to even very young children. So I think that's something that's worth considering as well, particularly when we really do want to stick with a beta-lactam. But of course, there are other alternatives that can be used as well. We've had to explore those a little bit um, in the UK where we had a very sudden um, sharp increase in the number of children being treated with beta-lactams in the community and through emergency departments. Well, although there wasn't an overall shortage, there was a local shortage of just moving the antibiotics to the right place. So important to know what other antibiotics could be used um, if necessary. So the guidelines in the UK would be using penicillin, then amoxicillin or a macrolide, flucloxacillin, cephalexin, we tend to try to avoid cochamoxazole and clindamycin, but they can be used if there is a reason why you can't use the other antibiotics. Um, and again, in the US, if there's um, a child who's got a non-anaphylactic penicillin allergy, it's completely fine to use cephalexin or perhaps clindamycin or macrolide if, um, if there is an anaphylaxis. Aware, Tash, there's been concerns over macrolide resistance in the context of group A strep. Although interesting, we saw very low rates of macrolide resistance in the UK during this current outbreak. Um, but why penicillin, group A strep still seems exquisitely sensitive to penicillin. How come we don't see um, resistance to penicillin in these children or adults? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because we've been using it, you know, for 80 odd years. And yet to date, there have been no um, penicillin resistant clinical isolates of group A strep. It's not 100% clear, but um, we know that not only are there no clinically resistant strains, but there's also no demonstrable penicillin binding protein mutations in clinical isolates um, that have been recovered. There's also some really interesting uh, work where people have produced genetically modified strains of group A strep uh, that have been engineered to express a low affinity penicillin binding protein. And really interesting, those strains had much lower survival and lower virulence in vitro. So it does seem that penicillin resistance in group A strep simply confers too big a cost to the bacteria's survival. So hopefully that's a little bit of a silver lining um, in antibiotic use here. Mm. And just in terms of what the macrolide rates have been, published have been, what, what do we know about macrolide resistance rates? So it varies. So across Europe, uh, it's quoted as being about 2 to 32% and up to 20% in the US. It's usually around about 7% in the UK. But Chrissy, as you mentioned, it was even lower than that at about 4% recently. Um, I don't think we can sort of rely on these numbers staying static because obviously it'll depend on local usage. Um, so it's just something to be aware of. So if we just go back to our case now, this child is documented as having a penicillin allergy. So the general practitioner reports that at the age of 18 months, Months. Um, this child had an acute febrile illness and had a diffuse macular papular rash to amoxicillin. So on that basis, the GP prescribes them a five-day course of oral azithromycin. Uh, what do you think about that, Chrissy? Yes, this is really common. I see this a lot in, in my practice that large numbers of parents reporting their child is penicillin allergic. 
Um, so it's reported around 10% of patients report penicillin allergy. And the majority, is probably 75%, are labelled as penicillin allergic less than three years of age, which is highly unlikely. And it's thought that only really one in 10 reporting um, a penicillin allergy really do have a true allergy or intolerance. I think it's really important that we unpick this and get to the bottom of it, making sure we're taking a, a thorough history about what the presentation of that um, allergy was, think about whether this was actually a non-allergic expected reaction to the drug, for instance, um, an expected side effects like GI um, intolerance, or perhaps this was a non-allergic reaction to the drug, um, such as amoxicillin being used during acute EBV, or whether this child simply had an acute viral exanthem during, during the time they were given penicillin and amoxicillin had nothing to do with the drug at all. So really important um, that we're making sure that we fully investigate these, both with the history and, if necessary, with a challenge. Because what we don't want is these children being labelled penicillin allergic and not being able to use a beta-lactam in the case of acute severe infection where we really would be wanting to use um, a beta-lactam versus a macrolide. And as we said, even in the context of group A strep, there is um, up to, say, 20 to 30% maximum rates of macrolide resistance. So we don't want children to be using drugs which are so- suboptimal if that's not necessary. So, yeah, really important to be um, clarifying these things. That's great. That's a really helpful learning point. Um, so apart from the antibiotics, are there any other management considerations for this child? Yeah, so I think important to to know that actually because group A strep is so exquisitely sensitive, these children don't need to be off school for long periods of time. So as long as they're well and afebrile, they only need to be excluded from school for the first day. So the UK guidance say 24 hours and even only 12 hours in the US. So this child, as long as they're well, can go back to school and can mix with um, siblings, peers and family. And we wouldn't do anything else with this child. We don't need to, um, to think about swabbing or treating other children or adults who have contact with this child as long as they're well. What about swabbing the child at the end of the course, or re-swabbing the child at the end of the course of antibiotics? So it's tempting, isn't it, to, to re- re-swab, to make sure your antibiotics have worked, but really um, it's not necessary. We know that asymptomatic carriage happens in a large proportion of children, probably up to 24, 25% of school-aged children will be asymptomatic carriers. And these children are very unlikely to transmit to other people and less likely to develop invasive group A strep themselves. So even if we did find carriage at the end and the child was completely well, I wouldn't prolong or retreat this this child. So no, I, I wouldn't um, re-swab. Okay, great. Um, so just thinking a bit more broadly, are there any other presentations we should be thinking about in primary care? Yes, we've focused very much, haven't we, on the throat, on pharyngitis and tonsillitis, but of course there are many other um, presentations of group A strep as well. So scarlet fever, a very common presentation where you have a child who has a febrile illness, usually with pharyngitis, they develop a sandpaper-like rash 12 to 48 hours later, which normally starts centrally and spreads. They may have peeling, the fingers, toes are in the groin, They might have a white-coated tongue, which then becomes what's known as a strawberry tongue with um, looking just like a a strawberry. This, again, should be treated with antibiotics, as we talked about already. Interesting, this is a notifiable infection in the UK, but not in in the US. Another very common presentation to primary care would be um, impetigo. 
It's very difficult to know whether this is caused by group A strep or staph aureus clinically because they, they look identical. Um, also, of course, this can cause um, other skin infections such as cellulitis and erysipelas as well. So these are probably the most common um, non-severe cases presenting to primary care. Great. Thank you. Um, so our case continues now. So the child is is doing really well. But 24 hours later, their three-year-old younger sibling presents to the A&E department. Now, unlike the older sibling, this child looks unwell and they're drowsy. They don't report any recent diagnosis of group A strep themselves or any illness consistent with group A strep. But the child has had a viral upper respiratory tract infection about one week ago. Uh, The child is coughing. They have a fever. They're tachypneic and they have intercostal recessions. Uh, A chest x-ray is done, which shows a left-sided consolidation with a fusion, and an ultrasound scan is done, which confirms an empyema. So, Chrissy, what's going on here? Yes, it's a much more concerning presentation, isn't it? We have to consider this could be invasive group A strep, particularly in the context of the sibling also having group A strep at the same time. Perhaps they've been in contact with the same primary index case, but this child does sound um, much more unwell. We need to bear in mind this kind of presentation can also be caused by pneumococcus and also staph aureus as well. So it's possible this child had a viral upper respiratory tract infection seven days ago at the time that they were exposed to group A strep. This caused the mucosa to be inflamed and group A strep to become invasive. Um, as you said, Tash, from the history of this sounds like this is a child with aima. So important to be um, promptly treating this child and also thinking about source control as well. So first of all, think about what antibiotics we'd use. As we've discussed, we really want to be using a beta-lactam in this child, so either Benpen or a Cephalosporin. I would also add clindamycin here as well. It sounds like there's a possibility of a toxic shock type picture as well. Um, and certainly some of these children, we've seen um, large numbers of children with group A strep empyema recently that have been really quite unwell. Um, and we've been using clindamycin in each, each of these children for the initial management. But also think locally about what's circulating or what's most likely in your setting. And think about whether you need to use vancomycin as well if there's um, concern about MRSA. So we talked a little bit about beta-lactams already. And I've said in this case, I'd also use um, clindamycin. Do you want to talk from the microbiology point of view about why we would add clintomycin and what the benefits are here of that? Yeah, so so the beta-lactam obviously is your, your cell wall antibiotic, which would be great for um, for cytal activity against the, the bacteria. I think where you've mentioned that there's, you know, one of the presentations is with toxic shock, it's really helpful to add in a an intracellular agent as well. So clindamycin acts at the 50S ribosomal subunit, disrupting protein synthesis, so it can uh, switch off toxin production in this setting. And if there is resistance or anaphylaxis to clindamycin, you can also use linezolid. Another nice thing to consider is the eagle effect. So beta-lactams demonstrate what's called the eagle effect. So the paradoxical reduced efficacy of beta-lactams at at concentrations that are higher than the optimum bactericidal concentration. There's a bit of an unclear mechanism. So it could be because the bio-burden is so high that the bacteria have transitioned to the stationary rather than the log phase. And so the beta-lactam is actually unable to access those stationary bacteria. And the clindamycin um, sort of jumpstarts them back into the log phase so that the beta-lactam can then kill them. 
The other theory is that at very high doses, beta-lactams can downregulate penicillin binding proteins or even precipitate the drug. But these are based more on in vitro uh, observations. But yes, yeah, so clindamycin, because it doesn't display the eagle effect, can be a very useful adjunct to a beta-lactam. So those are the antibiotic. Any other considerations for treatment? Yes, we talked about um, the possibility of toxic shock in this child. I think if we're worried about the hemodynamic state of this child, if there's a rash, conjunctivitis, diarrhea as well, we need to be um, considering the use of IVIG as well as an adjunct um, initially in the management of this child. Also, we need to crucially be thinking about source control. So this this child may well need to go to theatre for a chest strain to try to, to improve source control. We've seen this um, recently with several of these children with empyemas, even when they've had chest strains, if the chest strains become kinked or hasn't been draining so effectively, they've become quite unwell again subsequently until we've got proper source control. So we know this from other cases, from other presentations as well, but really important to be thinking about this in the case of empyemas as well. Other situations, um, so septic joints, again, really important for source control, um, abscesses and necrotizing fasciitis as well. Um, We talked a little bit about um, infection control previously. So for this child, again, we'd need to isolate them for 24 24 hours after the antibiotic um, start. We should be talking to our public health colleagues, which would be the HPA in the UK or the CDC in the the US. And one thing to be thinking about now is um, contact prophylaxis. So we talked about for the child with the primary care presentation of acute pharyngitis unless there's a highly vulnerable person in the household we don't really need to be thinking about that but with invasive group a strep we do need to have consideration more carefully about whether there's somebody who's been in contact with a child who's at high risk and who's had prolonged contact in the week prior to symptoms and this should be guided by public health um, inputs and although the categories of high risk are not strictly defined, I think it's helpful to think of those people who are likely to be at highest risk. So these include women late in the third trimester of pregnancy until one month postpartum, neonates, um, elderly individuals, those with active or recent chickenpox, or those um, individuals who are living with HIV. So c- contact with our public health um, colleagues to, to discuss this on a case-by-case um, basis. So Tash, just bringing this back to you again, in this case, we have a child with what we suspect is a group A strep empyema, a chest strain has been taken, we've sent off blood cultures, we've sent off samples from the drain. Can you tell us a bit more about what would happen to these samples in the lab? Okay, so um, as we've said, uh, group A strep, especially in invasive disease, tends to have a very, very high bioburden. So it wouldn't be at all surprising if the blood cultures and even the the pus from the chest drain flag positive. However, that being said, uh, group A strep is so exquisitely sensitive that if they were taken after antibiotics were initiated, they may well be negative. In that case, if there's any diagnostic uncertainty, you can perform a PCR to confirm the diagnosis. But of course, you wouldn't get antibiotic susceptibility from that. Um, importantly, we would always send any positive isolates uh, of invasive group A strep to a reference lab for typing. So there are about 240 different subtypes of group A strep based on the M protein. Traditionally, this was done by serotyping, although more recently been done by M genotyping, which is a little bit more discriminating than serotyping. And the rationale here is that being aware of local um, subtypes helps with uh, public health surveillance and epidemiology. 
And it can be quite useful to know this. So, for example, in the UK, scarlet fever is traditionally associated with the M1 lineage, whereas things like uh, pyoderma, rheumatic fever and pharyngitis um, with glomerulonephritis are typically associated with other subtypes. And this may be some of the explanation for why disease presentation is so different in different countries. Um, interestingly, we've we've also seen uh, a predominance of the M1 subtype during the recent outbreak in the UK, which we mentioned a few times, Chrissy. Do you want to pick up on that? Um, so, yeah, we saw this very large sudden increase in group A strep cases, um, both non-severe and invasive group A strep cases in December, which came down very fairly rapidly. And for the UK, this will be very, very early in the normal group A strep season. We're now entering what we would consider to be the normal season and cases still remain higher than we would normally see in a normal um, season. But we are still quite early in the season. So we're waiting to see a little bit what happens, but we're certainly not seeing the huge numbers of cases in a very short period of time that we saw in November and December of 2022. While we thought quite a bit about what's been going on in the UK, I think it's really important to take um, a bigger picture view of this. So really, the global burden of disease is not in high income countries, but low middle income countries. So globally, group A strep is implicated in the deaths of half a million children a year. And the majority of this actually is not invasive group A strep, but rather is to do with the um, non-subjective complications such as um, acute rheumatic fever, which is a much bigger cause of morbidity and mortality um, globally. So it's estimated over 33 million cases of acute rheumatic fever are reported every year. And of the half a million deaths, the majority probably are actually due to acute rheumatic fever. Um, this still remains quite rare in high-income countries, I think we can perhaps debate the reasons for that, whether that's availability of antibiotics, um, different circulating strains, differences in um, genetics. But certainly when we think about uh, group A strep, we need to be thinking globally, not just about high income countries as well, because that's really where the burden of disease is and really in these um, later non-separative complications. So Tash, just think about how we might be able to prevent this in the future. Given this huge burden of global disease, particularly um, in rheumatic fever, what's been the progress on a vaccine and why don't we have one yet? It's a really good question. Um, so I did a little bit of, of digging around that and it looks like there have been several attempts. So going back to the 1940s, there was uh, an attempt to make a, a group A strep vaccine using whole killed group A strep bacteria. Uh, that particular vaccine was very reactogenic and not particularly tolerated. And also importantly, it didn't seem to prevent disease. Moving on to the 1960s, another vaccine was made using purified M proteins. Um, but there was a big controversy because it was unclear whether that uh, vaccine was actually causing a slight increase in rheumatic fever in immunized children because of a, a sort of uh, a cross-reactive immunity. It's not actually clear to this day whether that was due to the vaccine, but because of the concern, it, it caused a big pause uh, in that development. And the FDA in the States actually put a ban on that development um, from the 1970s through to the early 2000s. Um, 
The sad truth as well, as you've already mentioned, Chrissy, is that the vast majority of the global burden disease is in low and middle income countries. And so sadly, from a sort of drug development point of view, it's it's not thought to be as, as profitable for vaccine companies, given where the burden of disease is, which is um, quite sad, but, but a pragmatic um, view of this. There's also some ongoing barriers. Um, so we don't yet have really good um, immune correlates of protection. So ways of measuring immunogenicity of vaccines uh, before rolling them out. Uh, there's not particularly good animal models. And there are these ongoing concerns about autoimmune reactions, uh, given the immune nature of the non-separative group A strep complications. Um, something that's quite exciting and something that I'm quite interested in is that uh, there's recently been progress towards group A strep human challenge models. So this is where you would inoculate human volunteers with group A strep to test early phase vaccines. So that's really exciting. Uh, there's also been some heartening progress um, from a global health perspective. So in 2018, the WHO passed a re resolution recognizing rheumatic heart disease as a global health priority. And the Wellcome Trust has um, set up a very generous um, uh, consortium dedicated to achieving a strep A vaccine. So hopefully some progress is on the horizon. Great. Thanks, Tash. So I think it's been an interesting um, couple of cases. A child, first of all, with um, a non-severe presentation to primary care, who we talked about whether we would swab, whether we would treat, and if we treated, what would we treat with and why? And really the treatment was to prevent transmission to more vulnerable members of the family and the community. And thought about what might be the, the case if this child was penicillin allergic and making sure we're delving into the history to find out whether this is a true um, reaction or not. And then think about invasive group A strep as well and the different presentations of this the need for source control in some cases, effective antibiotics, adjuncts such as um, IVIG as well, um, and then thinking about prophylaxis for those um, high risk in contact with that child. So thanks, Tash, for bringing this case. I think it's been um, a really useful thing to discuss. Um, and while we might think this is quite simple, there's obviously lots of different things we can delve into um, to discuss the complications. So thank you. Thank you so much. That was a great summary. I'm very grateful to Tash and Chrissy for joining today. Don't forget to check out the website federalpodcast.com to find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references and we'll have tons of great resources for this episode. Our library of ID infographics and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.